0: Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening.
1: So I'm reading 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 1 to 21. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore judge nothing before the point in time, wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to wane and doubt without us. How I wish that you really had begun to wane so that we also might wane with you. For it seems to me that God has put us, our apostles, on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels, as well as to human beings. We are full for Christ, but you so rise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. We are cursed, we bless. When we are prosecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the, of the, of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. I'm writing I'm this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I sent you Timothy, my son, who I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, it is as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Should I come to you with a word of discipline, or should I come in love and with a gentle spirit?
0: Great. Um, Yeah, my name is Monte. I've seen a number of you before. It's great to come down a couple of times during the year, and uh, also to see some new faces. My work is with the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students in Europe, Um, So if some of you are or have been involved in the Christian Union in Trinity College or UCD or DIT or wherever, uh, you're linked with other Christian unions around Ireland, and they're linked with uh, people like you all over Europe. So uh, immediately after this service, I've got to go to the airport to go to Kosovo, where we're starting to pioneer brand new Christian union movement in the universities in Kosovo. So lots of good things happening. Uh, Actually, uh, here present... Uh, this afternoon is my former colleague, uh, Christian, from, um, from uh, Denmark. He was my Danish colleague, ran the Christian Union movement in Denmark here with his wife, so it's lovely to see, see them there and uh, to renew fellowship. But uh, it's, great, it's great to be here. Uh, power and authority in the church. Wow. I wonder how you respond when I say that that is the subtitle for today's topic power and authority in the church. I'd be very surprised if there wasn't at least a little bit of a negative gut reaction, a um, don't go there. That subject is totally toxic. Some of you may be intrigued about what I'm about to say because you haven't really worked out how this thing works in the Christian community. But for some of you, it's a major trigger due to your own experiences. Most of us who are at least a little acquainted with the recent history of churches, including evangelical churches and Christian organizations, will know that issues of spiritual abuse and bullying and abuse of power dynamics have been front and center as one after another organization or church has been accused and investigated for inappropriate leadership. Maybe you've observed this as people you know have been involved on both sides. Maybe some of you are in recovery from situations like that, of power abuse, and you've been church-burned, in which case this subject will ring a lot of our alarm bells for you, but I hope that you'll bear with me as we see what the Bible has to say. So why am I speaking about it? Well, because one of the frustrating but wonderful aspects of preaching through the Bible systematically is that you cannot avoid the difficult bits And I happened to get the short straw. When I heard you were doing Corinthians, I said, knowing Steve, they'll work it out that I get something really hard, like speaking in tongues or uh, the role of men and women or uh, head coverings or handing people over to Satan. That's all ahead of you, so don't worry about that. Uh, And then I thought, oh, good, I'm getting chapter 4. And then I read it and went, oh, my goodness, how do you apply that into today's church? But I also appreciate that maybe in God's timing, It's much easier for me, a relative outsider, to come and speak about this rather than having Steve or the elders to talk about it. So let's go. The problem I think we have is twofold. It's clear in the New Testament, not just in this passage, but throughout the epistles, that God has delegated the role of ruling his church on earth to those who have been called and ordained to do so by the people of God. However, those leaders, no matter how called, no matter how gifted, are still sinful people. Sometimes they get it wrong and have to repent. Sometimes they even go further and use their leadership platform to misuse their authority, and therefore they forfeit that authority. The other problem we have is that we know from the example of Christ that his model of leadership is servant leadership. We'll see this later. We've got to be among the church as those who serve. But it's equally true that serving and supporting and encouraging also includes rebuking, correcting, disciplining. Jesus did it himself with Peter and James and John and the other disciples. Paul does it with his churches. Paul actually did it with Peter in the book of Galatians, if you read it. And he certainly does it with the Corinthians. So how are we to apply a chapter which seems to be all about Paul losing his patience with the church, pulling rank to get them to listen to him? Is this a little bit of Paul being my way or the highway? Well, fortunately, the best way to understand this chapter and to keep the balance is set out for us in the very first two verses. There's two interpretative keys to this passage. Firstly, for church members in verse one, and then for leaders in verse two. So, firstly, to the church, verse one this then is how you ought to regard us leaders as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, while apostolic leadership had a special authority, leadership generally in the church is going to be different from that in a political party, or a rugby club, or even in business, because church leaders have been entrusted with something supernatural, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel that transforms rebels into disciples, disciples into those who are being changed daily into the likeness of Jesus. The role of the church leader is to share the mysteries of God, namely the good news that was revealed in Jesus, that those who were alienated from God can become his friends. So Paul takes this word mysteries, which was a sort of pagan buzzword of the day, uh, used by people, including those in Corinth, to show that they had a special revelation that was above everybody else. They could see mysteries nobody else could see He takes that word, and he applies it to something that was hidden in the past, in the Old Testament times, but now has been revealed in Jesus Christ. The greatest mystery of all of how God's love and grace can be made known to us in our alienated state from God. Earlier in chapter 2, verses 6 to 7, if you look back, he says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. In Ephesians chapter 3, after explaining how the dividing wall has come down that separated Jews and Gentiles and now they can be reconciled to God through the cross, he refers to this as the mystery given to him by revelation. Now, here in verse 1, the metaphor of stewards is a really helpful one for us, I think, because the steward was a slave. The steward was a servant, but he was one with clear delegated authority to manage the household. That's what Paul says they are. They are servants, but with authority to manage the master's household. So, because of the nature of the church and the spiritual calling of the leadership in the church, leaders must be acknowledged as having an authority delegated from God. But to balance this immediately, we have verse 2. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. So, are leaders above criticism? No. Are they above discipline? No. Does their status excuse them from behaving in abusive ways? No, of course not. They must prove faithful to that trust. So if they transgress the boundaries of theology or ethics, that is, if they teach something which is in clear contradiction to the Scriptures, or if they are guilty of immorality, then we are freed from being under their authority because they have stopped being under the authority of God. However... Although church scandals are the ones that we hear about and that the media loves to tell us about, we only have to do the mathematics to know that all over the world there are tens of thousands of churches faithfully getting on with the task of preaching and living out the gospel. That's the good news. Most church splits, most disagreements in church life The reason over 98% of people leave churches is not over theology or morality, but because of conflicting agendas, personality clashes, power plays, making secondary issues primary ones. And into those situations, I believe Paul's word applies today. Have respect for the authority of the leaders God has placed over you. It doesn't matter if your strategy for the church is different from theirs. It doesn't matter if you think you could do a better job. It doesn't matter if you don't like the music. It doesn't matter if they're spending money on A and you think they should be spending money on B. That's not important. Your role is to support them and pray for them and be open to the fact that God is leading them by His Spirit and that maybe God isn't always endorsing your agenda. So what follows in this passage then are the wrong ways and the right ways to approach three issues, judgment, ministry, and discipleship. So in verses 3 to 6, he deals with the issue of judgment or judgmentalism. I once saw a name of the 21st century Bible And it said, basically, this Bible was everything scored out apart from the first two words of Matthew 7, judge not. And we were told that for today's culture, that's the only Bible that they need or want. Don't judge me. But of course, that doesn't work. We haven't become less judgmental as a culture. We've just changed the things we're judgmental about. Those of us who regularly and publicly hold on, for example, to a Christian sexual ethic are mercilessly judged by those around us. And when it comes to global or political issues, X, formerly Twitter, is hardly a judgment-free zone. I once, just this weekend, was talking to a, a friend who said that she was harangued by her neighbor because she took her grandchildren to the zoo that they thought this was utterly inappropriate. Um, Now, I wonder what would have happened if my friend had harangued her, a Christian to a non-Christian, over some aspect of her life choices that my friend didn't agree with. No, we've just changed the things that we're judgmental about. Paul presents himself here as being the opposite of a people pleaser, He distances himself in verses three to six from human judgment, not even judging himself because he knows we can all deceive ourselves. At all times, he's keen to live under the lordship of Jesus and he says it's his judgment and his judgment alone which matters. Now again, we have a problem. Surely, Monty, this is a little bit of a get out, isn't it? Surely this allows Paul and others to get away with whatever they like and just leave it up to God. Well, no, not quite. The key phrase is actually later in verse eight: "Judge nothing before the appointed time." Judge nothing before the appointed time. So when is the appointed time? Sorry, I think it is verse six. That's a misprint in my. Uh, is that a misprint in my in my notes? Sorry about that. Verse five. verse five is it? That's it. That's it. Da, da, da. Yes. No. No. verse... Yes, verse 5, sorry. I think, yes, that's right, verse 5. Sorry, it's a, it didn't seem right in my notes. So the key phrase is in verse 5. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Paul was being judged on the authenticity of his apostleship and the fruitfulness of his ministry. But it's God who judges those things at the appointed time. Only eternity will reveal the value of any ministry. But this doesn't apply to making judgments or having discernment with regard to morality or sound teaching or behavior within the church, because the appointed time for that is now. When else would it be? It's not going to be in heaven. This is a church age when the church is God's means of embodying the gospel. The time to protect the church from heresy and immorality is now. And then similarly, verse 6, do not go beyond what is written. It's a very obscure phrase in the Greek that's, that's hard to translate, but essentially he's saying, don't live outside of the Scriptures. So judging someone else's service or judging somebody else's spirituality in the church is beyond your pay grade as a Christian. And it's beyond mine. You see, that was the Corinthian problem. They deemed themselves more spiritual than Paul. They despised his weaknesses, as we will see. It seems that there was a heresy around that claimed a greater enlightenment for them over and against the weakness or the foolishness of Paul's theology of the cross. Essentially, they were embracing a different gospel. They forgot that it is the Lord who judges those things, and if they start judging those things, they will become puffed up and arrogant, verse 6. But what is the role of the church leadership? It's to be discerning and not allow false teaching to creep in to the church. So to recap, I think there's direct application here for the church in how we treat our leaders. This passage is certainly a challenge to those who constantly examine their leaders or complain or gripe or whinge about them or judge them for not being successful enough or not charismatic enough or not communicating well enough. But it's also a message to the leaders to remember that they are accountable to God for their ministry. So yes, be free from wanting to please people, although that's hard. But recognize that the opposite of people pleasing is not just pleasing yourself, doing your own thing. The opposite of people pleasing is pleasing God. And then we have a a wrong and a right view of ministry. A wrong and a right view of ministry, verses 7 to 13. In the light of this spiritual judgmentalism, Paul asks the Christian Corinthians three foundational questions that can be summed up in the phrase, "Who on earth do you think you are?" What makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you didn't receive, And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you didn't, as if you'd merited it in some way? Don't be ungrateful. Everything is of grace. Nothing is earned, nothing is deserved. The Corinthians missed grace and the humility of the crucified one. Grace leads to gratitude. Grace has a self-leveling effect, whereas self-importance has a self-exalting effect where we think we've already arrived. You see, here we have Paul at his most devastating, even sarcastic, we could say. And again, that could sit on easily with us. But Paul's dilemma was that the very gospel was at stake. How can he reassert his delegated authority without forgetting the fact that he's also a servant? You see, Paul's normal posture is to come with gentle words of encouragement. Read the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians particularly. Read the book of Philippians. See his final question here in verse 21. What would you prefer that I come in love with a gentle spirit. That is what he wants. That's what he would prefer. But the the Corinthians were something else. They needed invasive surgery before any healing ointment could be applied. And so to drive home the point that they were thinking too highly of themselves, he goes into this list of contrasts. Uh, And basically, this is his theology of the cross, while the Corinthians were remaining worldly in their thinking. He overstates their inflated view of themselves in verse 8 and in verse 10. Oh, you are so wise. And then with irony, he he boasts in the things that they despise in him. You see, what he could have said was, Oh, you're so wise, but with with the gospel, we have the real wisdom. You're, You're so strong, but with the gospel, we have the real strength. Uh, You you think that you're honored, but with the gospel, we are honored more. And and all of that would have been true. He could have said the same things and shown how the gospel was, was superior. But what he actually does is that he makes the point by glorifying the very things that they despised. Weakness, hunger, poverty, And he says, that's what we have. So how do we apply this long passage of sarcastic comments? Well, maybe part of the problem is that we imagine ourselves standing in the wrong shoes. We try to see Paul as our example. We've got to be like Paul. And we feel guilty maybe that we're too comfortable and we're not hungry or thirsty. We're not in rags. We're not brutally treated. We're not homeless. We don't bless when we curse. We must try to do better but that's not going to help. Maybe we need to realize that we might be more like the Corinthians than we care to imagine, and that we should take Paul's sarcastic rebukes as maybe God's word to us today. Verse 7, remember, what makes us different from anybody else? We have nothing that is not a gift from God and yet we still think that we're reigning over others, that we're spiritually superior to them, verse 8. We think we're wise and strong and honored. These verses are to be a constant reality check for any Christians or Christian leaders who get too above themselves. Why do we see so many pastors of megachurches or heads of worldwide ministries falling morally? or seeing their ministries collapse, I don't think that the size of their church or the largeness of their reputation is insignificant. The New Testament knows nothing of megachurches until Revelation chapter 7. Heaven. The temptations of the devil can sometimes be more powerful in times of success and popularity as at times of failure or hostility. But the way of the cross is the way of death and humiliation, verse 9, where Christians are seen by many as the scum of the earth. Paul uses a strong language to shock the Corinthians into realizing the implications of the Christian life and ministry. Well, what's the worst that can happen, Corinth? Oh, well, I mean, our our culture would just ignore us. They would just call us the scum of the earth. So what? Maybe they will. That's part of the package. That's the way of the cross. That leads us nicely to the third contrast, the wrong and right approach to discipleship, verses 14 to 21. And here the key verse is verse 16. Imitate me. Paul reasserts his authority, but he skillfully does it by changing the metaphor and speaking not of a steward or a slave, but as a parent to children. As a father disciplines his child, as God, our father, disciplines all of us, so too Paul here sees himself as the father, the planter of this church, and therefore he's burdened by this responsibility for them. Like any father, he wants to see them walking with God and protected from all that is harmful. Up until now, the behavior of the Corinthians has been a bit more like the prodigal son, hasn't it? despising their father and living lives of unrestrained indulgence as you will see next week in chapter 5. And instead Paul recommends a life of sacrifice and service typified in verses 8 to 13 with that list of things that he was glorying in in his weakness and his poverty in line with the crucified messiah not a life of indulgence or boasting or wisdom or sensuality. And so Paul wants daily repentance from the Corinthians. Preaching repentance, whether it is to unbelievers for the first time or to believers for daily repentance, that's always part of what a discipler does. Paul was never satisfied with just correcting doctrine. Both are necessary because right behavior follows Right doctrine. Here he's essentially saying what he wrote later to Timothy, his co-worker who he was sending to the Corinth. He says to Timothy, Watch your life and doctrine closely. We see at the very end of this passage that he knew they were going to need to be corrected one way or the other, but he would rather that it was the gracious appeal of the Father that would bring about the results. And he gives them a choice of two fatherly postures. He could either come with discipline or with a gentler spirit. Uh, in at the, last, the last verse of, uh, of chapter 4, you need to understand the literature here and how there's something which sometimes takes place in biblical literature, which is called gapping, which is where there is a parallel and then one bit of it's left out because you're just meant to assume that. So verse 21 leads, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or shall I come to you with love in a spirit of gentleness? But the exact parallel is really this that you're meant to imply. What do you wish? Shall I come to you in love with a rod or shall I come to you with love in a gentle spirit? Both would be in love. Paul knows that there is no way they'd exercise the discipline themselves. Proverbs three twelve 12 is, is quoted again in Hebrews and again in Revelation 3 to the church of Laodicea. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And so Paul urges obedience. Imitate me. And since he's not present, then at least imitate Timothy, who will remind you of my way of life. And my way of life, the Christian life, the discipleship, doesn't change from place to place with the prevailing spirit of the culture. It's not different than Galatia to Ephesus to Corinth. No, Paul's view of the Christian life is simple and constant. As I follow the Lord, you imitate me. And again, I guess this is something which leaves us feeling a little uncomfortable. How many of us would feel comfortable saying to a new convert, imitate me. We prefer to put a Bible in their hands and say, don't follow me, follow him. But you might be probably the first Bible that they read. And watching you may be the decisive factor in whether or not they'll ever bother opening the book to see what all the fuss is about. We need to understand where Paul's coming from here. He's not just concerned about having right or wrong issues on one topic or another. It's his whole identity and existence. The argument up until now is that you're not of Paul, you're not of Apollos, you're not of Peter, you're of Christ. And Paul writes this way because his past and present and future uh, perspective is defined by the death and resurrection of Jesus on one hand and the second coming of Jesus on the other. You read Corinthians, that's what you're getting, that perspective. Jesus has been risen. Jesus will come again. The resurrection was the singular reality that conditioned his entire existence. Paul and the Corinthians have to be radically different together. They're to live in the power of the resurrection, and they're to live in the constant expectation of, of Jesus' return and God's righteous judgment. That's why theology is important. That's why ethics is important. You see, if Jesus hadn't risen, if he was still in the tomb, Paul would have no right to rebuke the Corinthians because their lifestyle choices would be just as valid as his if there was no resurrection. Similarly, if there was no final judgment, he'd have no right to make provisional judgment on their behavior. It's just a matter of opinion. But with the authority of Christ, the risen one and the returning one, he can make those obligations. He says this elsewhere in Ephesians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 4, but particularly in chapter 11, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, he says again, imitate me, and then he qualifies it, as I imitate Christ. And then the final contrast here in this discipleship journey is to live by word and spirit. The Corinthians were big on their words of revelation, but says Paul, where's the power? Where's the power in your religion? But surely, Monty, you say he's just been speaking about how his ministry was not about power. It was characterized by weakness and humility. But there's nothing contradictory here, only if you invest words like power with a worldly meaning the gospel of Christ in all of its weakness and foolishness and humiliation in the eyes of the world, that gospel is still the power of God for salvation. He's already made this clear. If you look back at chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, he says, "'My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power.'" So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And then famously in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. See, that's where the true power resides. So the Corinthians can boast all they like about the intellectual abilities. They can boast all they like about their special words of wisdom. But does it have the power of the gospel to transform lives? Does it have the power of the gospel to enrich communities? Does it have the power of the gospel to change nations? No. So what do we take away from this for our own application? Well, first of all, for those entrusted with the mystery and wonder of the gospel, for the church leaders, I think first and foremost we begin with what we have just talked about, it will not be a problem for anyone in the church to respect your authority if you imitate Christ. They'll be more likely to accept your discipline if you embrace the weakness and foolishness of the gospel. And if they see that you're not puffed up, full of your own importance, that you're not in ministry to bolster your own reputation or massage your ego, but like Christ, you take up your cross and follow Also, you shouldn't be afraid to still exercise discipline for the good of the whole church from a precision and posture of humility and Christ dependence, doing it with a meek and gentle spirit. And above all, never let the discipline become something you enjoy. Never let it be done harshly or proudly. Instead, love the church. Love the church as a parent loves a child, including when they're disciplining them. And make sure your gospel is powerful. There are too many churches with sound theology that are lifeless. There's too many churches where evangelism happens in name or where there's accurate teaching about Jesus, but where there's no expectation or anticipation of meeting Jesus. No expectation that lives can be changed forever by the power of God's Holy Spirit. May that not be the case for this church. And then to those in the church. We must submit to the Scriptures. That's the benchmark. If the church goes clearly against the Scriptures or turns a blind eye to unrepentant immorality, then you must obey the Scriptures. But those are the minority of cases. Your first posture within the church should be one of submission to, in the Lord to the church leaders. And in case there's still any doubt about what I've said and what that means... This is how I've expanded it in the light of the rest of the Bible. Live appropriately under the loving, humble, and biblical authority of those called to exercise oversight in the Lord, exhibiting a humble spirit that imitates their spirit as they imitate the spirit of Christ. And then, thirdly, don't be led astray by heresy or temptation. And in this passage, the two temptations that Paul gives particular attention to are super-spirituality and worldly ambition and power. Thinking we know better or have superior spiritual insight than those who lead us. Taking it upon ourselves to decide when we listen to them and when we don't. And tied in with this, the temptation of worldly ambition and power, the ringleaders in Corinth were clearly tempted by this. They exerted an influence over vulnerable young converts in a way that could become spiritually fatal. And then watch your life and doctrine closely. If you don't watch your life, your doctrine will suffer. I have seen people change their theology just to suit their lifestyle choices. And if you don't watch your doctrine, your life will suffer. Anything that dilutes the gospel of grace will lead you away from freedom and joy in Christ. And for all of us, in closing, preserve and protect the integrity of the gospel, theologically and relationally. Because if the gospel is preserved, the church will be preserved. So let's live in the light of the resurrection. To repeat that earlier quote, make the resurrection the singular reality that conditions your entire existence. So the issue of power and authority in the church, how we respond to our church leaders, is just another area of discipleship. It's just one more locus where we live out what it means to be a humble servant of God with a gentle and humble spirit learning from other people as they imitate Christ. It's just one other locus where we do that discipleship. So let's reflect on what that might mean for us as we get ready to finish with praise. How do you view yourself Not higher than you ought. Everything is a gift. How do you view this congregation? Brothers and sisters and leaders in the Lord. How do you view the universal church of Christ over all the globe? You're no different from anyone else. They have all been given the gift of grace that you have been given. How do you view your Christian walk? Imitation ultimately of Christ, but also those mentors in the faith. He has given you the gift of the church. He's given you this gift this afternoon before you go back into your working week. Don't despise it, and don't despise those who minister to you here. And above all, how do you view God, the one who has given us so much, and supremely raise Jesus Christ from the dead so that we can now enter a whole new window of reality. Living the kingdom of God, not that it's already here like the Corinthians falsely thought, but getting glimpses into the kingdom of God while we live in this broken world. And understanding that because of the resurrection and because of the coming judgment, we can live as free and forgiven children of our Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those you have given us to teach us, to mentor us, to guide us. Keep them faithful, we pray, as stewards of the gospel. And keep us wise and discerning that we will be able to know how you will lead us from day to day and that our understanding of ministry and discipleship will not be skewed by worldly ambition or super spirituality or false ideas of power influence, but that we will learn to glory in some of those things that the world despises. We may be weak, but that's the gospel because he's strong. We may be hungry and thirsty, but that's the gospel because ultimately he is the one who satisfies and nourishes. We may be poor, but in him we have the riches of eternity. Amen. Amen.